This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers and fans, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm Norman Lau, and with me, as he is every week, is my esteemed co-host and content manager for the network, Will Wynn. How you doing, Will? I am great. How are you, Norm? I'm doing pretty good. Did you enjoy your vacation? I did. I did, very much. Uh, well, it wasn't so much a vacation as it was a refit, so... Um, you know, you have to put everything back into place, make sure that your, you know, the captain's chair, the host chair isn't squeaking too much, make sure that trip put everything back the way it needed to be, um, reassembled, and now everything's good, everything's good. I'm glad to be back behind the mic, I missed you guys, but in the last episode, uh, ladies and gentlemen and our listeners to Warp 5, Will and Jeff and Tommy did a great show. I hope you had a chance to listen to it. If not, pause this show. Go back, listen to the other show, come back to this show. They did a great job. They had a lot of fun with it, and um, I was so glad that they were able to do that and have a lot of fun with it. But we're coming back to, to the, the, the trio here. It's like Rush, the power trio of Canada. You know. So any Rush fans out there, raise your hand in your car. After this, throw on some Rush, throw a little bit 2112, a little bit of moving pictures, because remember, this is Rush's last touring year. They've been touring for 40 years. So uh, we don't look like we've been touring for 40 years, Norm. Look <laughs> pretty good. Look pretty time. good. A long time. So we have Will here, and we have uh, back with us, we have Jeff, Jeff Harlan, uh, Trekopedia author and author of his own comic book, The Protectorate. Jeff, how you doing? Doing good. Getting ready for Comic-Con this weekend. Oh, that's right. So you're going down, huh? Yep. Good for you. Ladies and gentlemen, this man and his fiance are driving back every day of the convention. They're driving down there, doing the whole con thing, then driving back. Than doing it a whole, doing it again for three other consecutive days. That is incredible. That's commit to me. That's either commitment or committed. Uh, <laughs> I both. salute you, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just I, I live relatively close to San Diego, and it takes you know about a little over an hour each way to drive, and it's less expensive to drive than it is to get a hotel. So driving the entire weekend is half of the cost of a hotel for one night that's so, insanity though yeah. and that's the way that comic-con's kind of going i love comic-con i haven't been there in a while and it's still they do a great show obviously because it's it sells out in, in record time but that's actually i was thinking about doing that too jeff at one time just kind of come back you know gas and travel but 
But I know what you're going to be listening to on the way back and forth. You're going to be listening to Trek FM. Oh, absolutely. Right? I've got about a half a dozen episodes queued up on my, uh, my phone here. And that's why we have Jeff back every week, because he's that loyal and he's paid Will and I a handsome sum to have him guest star for us. So. <laughs> so we have a great show for you tonight. We are continuing our subspaced postcards format. And we like subspace postcards because it allows fans and friends of the network, and especially through the Babel Conference, to contact us and let us know about whatever they want to talk about, different subjects, things that we haven't discussed, things that are just on their mind that they feel is enterprise-related and they haven't heard yet on the shows in any significant way. So we're going to open up the subspace postcard signal from Hoshi Station and... With a roll of the dice, see what comes up first. So, in our first subspace postcards, we have from the Babel Conference a letter from Joseph Compton IV. And he has asked us, quote unquote, or has said to us, I think the creators of Enterprise should have had civilian scientists on board the ship. Starfleet would run the ship, and the civilians would run the science with the lead scientist interacting with Archer to set up away missions and target planets, stars, and other phenomenon. He also then says Starfleet would have an understanding of what science courses would need to be integrated and specialized in at the Academy for future missions years down the road. I think that's a really interesting point because to break down the last part of it, we don't really see a lot of the information that the missions have influenced uh, you know, Starfleet and Starfleet courses, but... To his first point, Will, Jeff, what do you think about that? Do you think uh, it would have been interesting to see these types of civilian people, experts, what have you, on the ship? Would it have made sense or would it have got, just gotten in the way? I really like that idea because I think it makes a lot of sense. If, Especially in season one when Archer and the rest of the crew are really focused on that exploratory mission, it would have made a lot of sense for them to have a civilian contingent of scientists, especially at this point, which Starfleet is still relatively small, it would make a lot of sense that they would pull from a lot of, you know, maybe there's a dedicated Earth scientific agency that Starfleet is just the vehicle for them, literally the vehicle for them to get into space. But the specialties, right, the really, you know, astrophysics and what have you, or geological sciences, it would just be, it would be great because they mention, Archer mentions he's from Stanford, right? How great would it have been mm -hmm. if, they mentioned I am literally just a professor from from Harvard or MIT or um, from Shanghai University, right? And that they're literally just from a university. They're catching a ride, catching a lift over the NX-01 to go on this on this mission for the very first time. It would have made a lot of sense. It would have, I think, it would have ground Enterprise even more so than it initially was in terms of just kind of believability. Yeah, I would have taken it a step further. I would have had. Uh the crew actually been almost completely civilian, including most of the bridge crew. Um, mm -hmm. Like maybe Malcolm and as a military type person in charge of the security and the safety of the ship, but everyone else, they're just all civilian scientists and have Archer's position as captain just be a position and not an actual rank. And then, uh, you know, down the line, that would set things up for eventually becoming the Starfleet that we know later that's more of kind of a blend of the science and the military. And because of things like the Zindi crisis and the Romulan war, they have to blend the two of them together to make it into the Starfleet that we know in later shows. You know, the interesting thing about what you just said, Jeff, is 
you see that a lot in the original series. You see a lot of these civilian experts or these civilian um, like doctors or scientists or specialists ferried around by these Constitution-class ships, or at least in the original series, the Constitution-class ships, because they're there, I guess, at the directive of Starfleet to help expand the knowledge base, the database. And because they're experts in their field, astrophysics or star charting or diplomacy or medicine, engineering, these are the people that, you know, like civilians, like any type of expert, like the, the Surgeon General, he would have been you know, a perfect candidate to have gone out and study all the different types of diseases or what have you. It's just, I, I agree with what you also said, Will, is it just grounds the mission more in reality. Warp 5, episode 57, the class of 2151, Christopher Jones and I, we talked about Starfleet Academy and how they would have prepared the very first crew for this first deep space mission. And this is a realistic way of kind of approaching that, trying to find these people, put them on the ship, let them catalog whatever they need to catalog, record all that data, bring it back, and create basically all of these classes, if you will, synopsis, reports, data, downloads, all that kind of stuff, and then work with professors or instructors at the academy to help disseminate this information to the next class or upcoming officers. I mean, that's a pretty logical thing, don't you think? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think, like I said, just what I said before and, and what you guys mentioned is it just extends that 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 reality where people from our time, the modern audience has much more of a of visual touchstone, visual connection. I'm not sure if in his quarters, there's actually, is there an actual pennant of Stanford University or am I just imagining this? But that type of kind of, if they had civilians there, if they had that presence, they could have had much more of um, a stated uh, reference point to things happening back at Earth in terms of sports or entertainment or what people are reading, the news at the time, right? Connecting more to families. I think we're going to delve into that later on in the episode, but I think it would been really great if the civilian contingent aboard the ship had much deeper connections to their families. They they, they couldn't deal with the, the long extended periods of their way. They dealt with the challenges that, they, that the NX-01 faced in a different way than Starfleet did. There's a lot of dynamic there for them to, to learn from Starfleet, from Starfleet to learn from them, the tension that would arise. I think later on you have that with the Makos coming from the different perspective, coming from the military perspective. But I think it would be really nice to kind of see that um, civilian versus Starfleet at the very uh, outset. I think it would have tied it a little closer to the modern uh, era as well because right now our space program is dominated more by NASA, which is itself a blend of the military and the civilian interests because a lot of the astronauts, if not most of them, are former military or current military. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they're taking up a lot of these missions that are going up into space, uh, not just for scientific missions. There's also military missions going up. And, you know, that would be a, a good halfway point for uh, bringing us in on the first season of the show is where Starfleet is trying to do that same thing you know, 150 years in the future where we're 
doing a lot of scientific stuff and we're trying to be mostly a civilian type of organization, but then things happen and it causes us to start being a little more military incrementally. And next thing you know, we've got the Romulan War on our hands and 100 years later, it's Captain Kirk. Well, I guess it's, it kind of like is akin to um, when, when fans saw the Galaxy class in The Next Generation for the very first time and you had... Basically, a crew compliment, not just crew, but crew and civilian compliment of what, over a thousand people? About two thirds of that compliment were civilians and their families. So, you actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and technicians and specialists and, you know, their extended families on board. This would have been kind of like a really interesting touchstone as a first of, because enterprises that show a first ofs. So, I remember um, seeing uh, Gravity and Sandra Bullock's character was kind of like in that same vein. She wasn't military. You know, she was a doctor that was on board the space station to perform a specific task. George Clooney was military. And obviously his military training was able to kind of save her from you know, the, the jeopardy of what was happening with the, the, the space station being bombarded by other particles of, of other stations that were whipping around the, the, the gravity well. But... She was, you know, she she basically had to represent a specialist, and I don't see that being really any different when the Enterprise launched. They would have had, I guess, kind of like a, somewhere in between her and like a crewman Cutler, you know, because Cutler didn't really seem to have a specific specialty. She was kind of like a Jack or Jill, actually, in this case of all trades. She was able to work with flocks who wasn't Starfleet, per se, and learn basically how to be um, a medical technician. Not a full-fledged nurse or not a full-fledged doctor, but a medical technician who was able to do that specific task. She was also learning how to code databases, code DNA databases into your doctor. And I think that there were a couple other crewmen who actually were kind of, they served that same purpose. So there must have been at least a small percentage of them that were able to, to be the swing, if you will, of of where they needed to fit in when they're needed when backup was involved, because that's the one thing you never really saw on the crew. You never really saw a good sense of redundancy in key positions. If Flox went down as he did uh, in uh, two days and two nights, when he put himself into self-induced hypernetic uh, coma, um, no one was around really if there was a medical emergency except for Cutler. And she obviously didn't really know what to do when Travis hurt himself. So, we didn't see those other people on the bridge, you know, fill in the gaps. And maybe these civilians could have been kind of like the progenitors of, of, these, of these specific slots that needed to be filled in, especially when it came to diplomacy, because that's another thing I wanted to talk about. Do you think that it would have been logical, not so much in the TV sense of what we're watching, but logical if we believe this extended future of, of Enterprise and of Star Trek could be true, would it have been logical to have launched the Enterprise with a full-fledged trained diplomat on board? Yeah, I think it would have made a lot of sense because I think in the original series you have these Federation ambassadors that would often be very snooty towards towards Kirk that would try to countermand him, be like, I'll rank you and you need to be here and you know, issue these ultimatums. So it would have been a nice callback to that. But I think at the same time, I think it was a slight missed opportunity uh, in terms of how Starfleet was portrayed because I think 
it's what the studio wanted. The studio wanted something to still be recognizably Star Trek. So they wanted everyone to be uniformed. They wanted everyone to kind of have that same command structure, captain, a helmsman, all those parts, right? And I think that worked on on one aspect of of, uh, of establishing the Star Trek universe. But I think it was a missed opportunity because it didn't explore the kind of the, the early iterations of what Starfleet is, right? We have this United Earth government. So... But that doesn't necessarily mean Starfleet has figured out its role yet, right? In the same way you guys had mentioned before that they're still figuring out their civil, uh, their scientific specialties and where that plays in with military versus scientific imperatives. You're right, Norm. What about foreign policy, right? Or diplomacy, right? Is Starfleet also entrusted with that as well to, to make foreign policy on behalf of Starfleet later on in the future, they are. I think you see with, with Picard, he has a lot of leeway in terms of, of dealing with species, making first contact. But at this point, that first season could have really been a lot of, uh, there could have been a lot of things to mine in terms of what is Starfleet's role out here, right? Are, am I supposed to also be an ambassador too? And I could speak on behalf of my government because pretty much he does, right? And, mm-hmm. and Earth just kind of goes along, right? Or just defers to him right which we kind of go with but it would be really interesting to see well, what if other people on earth say whoa, whoa, whoa what's this lowly starship captain he has a lot of leverage a lot of power right what if there's someone else from united earth from from the government saying like we're here to represent the interests of the united earth government from this president not you jonathan archer right right i think it'd been really really interesting to have that yeah i think that would have uh, added a, a lot of really interesting elements i mean uh uh, another another thing that would uh, I, I think would have helped would was everybody in uh, in Starfleet at this point already seems to have some kind of paramilitary training at the very least. You know they can handle themselves in a fight, and if we have more civilian oriented scientists, they could still be wearing a uniform for the ship. But you know they've never been in a fight before, so they don't know what to do. Uh, they they're getting attacked and they're freaking out. Um, I, I think that would be uh, um, make for some interesting episodes earlier in the season, uh, and then they could build on that, and they get more comfortable with what's going on and uh, um, the threats that they're facing as they go further into space. Well, one of the last points I wanted to touch on, I wanted to leave the fans with a really good example of what could have been if you had this type of civilian interference on the bridge or or if Starfleet kind of shoehorned in someone that Archer didn't believe should have been on the mission in the first place. There's a really great episode in season one of Star Trek, the original series. It's called A Taste of Armageddon. And there was an ambassador there. His name was Ambassador Fox. And he basically threw his authority all over Kirk's bridge. Kirk was not having it. And you saw what happened when a trained diplomatic official who didn't really have the same, the type of relationship he needed to have with Starfleet's officers, especially Kirk and Spock, and the jeopardy that he put himself in when he actually went down to Mini R7 to try and negotiate peace with that situation there. He was completely, you know, just out of his element when it came to understanding the, the, the type of discipline it needed to, to approach these people. He, he saw it strictly from the diplomatic attache training from Starfleet or from actually not Starfleet, from just basically the United Earth Space Probe Agency at the time, or um, or the diplomatic corps, and that would have been a neat tension to see on Enterprise every once in a while. 
But I think the closest person that we saw on the bridge that was more civilian than officer was Hoshi. And Hoshi was more of a linguist than, I think, a Starfleet-trained professional because we saw that in her behavior. And the reason why I bring up Hoshi is because Mike Morrison, our associate producer here for Warp 5, asked this question. And Hoshi is our linguist, and his question is, math is just another language. A discussion on language in the Star Trek universe might be a noteworthy topic. Maybe too dry a subject for some, but I think Enterprise in particular explored alien languages perhaps a little more than other treks, but could have done more. So this is where we actually can see the bridge between what a civilian could have brought to the situation, how that person could have been trained into both civilian slash Starfleet officer, and because it's Hoshi and she's the communications officer, could have actually been trained in diplomacy so that now she has language, language barrier breakdown, diplomacy, first contact situation, protocol training, and the training of a Starfleet officer to make sure that she knows how to take care of herself if things go down in the wrong way. So what do you guys think about that? We always love talking about Hoshi because we believe that she was probably the one character that encapsulated so much potential but was so highly underutilized. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I think it's really clear that especially with a new Starfleet and a new ship on humanity's first deep space mission, the linguists, right, when they don't have a UT, or at least they're developing the Universal Translator for the first time, would depend on her so much, not only for communicating, but also for diplomacy, right? She should have been the, the chief diplomatic officer in addition to being the linguist, right? And she should have been right next to Archer, maybe sometimes even superseding Archer because of her specialty, of making contact and kind of being that liaison. And you really just don't see her doing that. I think and oftentimes she's just the one literally pressing the button to say open, you know, hailing frequencies, open, open communications. And it was such, it was such, it was falling back into such predictable tropes of what that character or what that role is to be. Oh, the communications officer, she just pressed button. She's a woman. She just open the, open the comms. That's all we need to do. Let, you know, let the captain speak. When in reality, the premise of the show should have been she played an integral role with that, and diplomacy should have been chief among those roles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that they established in the fourth season in the Mirror Universe two-parter, when they looked at Hoshi's bio, she developed the lingua code translation matrix that they used on the later Star Trek series. And that was something that they absolutely could have shown happening on the show. And that would have been a great character arc for her as she's learning all these languages from all around the galaxy and bringing them together, finding things that are common among all of them and developing like a Rosetta Stone for every language in the galaxy that everyone can understand. And that's just a huge missed opportunity. And like you said, the, she could should have been there right up in the front for every single mission where they're meeting a species for the first time. And they shouldn't be able to talk to them perfectly every single time they meet a new species. They should be stumbling and falling all over themselves like they did in fight or flight. Right. You know, and that, that brings up a really good point. And I'm not sure if this is what, if this is what Mike is going for, but take the actual production context of trying to train actors to learn new languages and allow that the, allow their characters alien or, Otherwise, to be able to speak something different, to be able to speak that language, and then to have that either subtitled or digitally tracked over. 
Because you see that a lot in science fiction today. I mean, not so much back, you know, in 2001, 2005, you know, when, uh, when Star Trek, when Enterprise was first released. And it's so commonplace now to see, um, like in Game of Thrones, you know, you have the Dothraki language and all of their actors, especially their lead actress who knows it backwards and forwards, Amelia Clark as Daenerys Targaryen, she brings that. She brings that, that texture, that, that grounded quality to a culture brilliantly. And I'm not saying that you have to have your actors come in at that level, but we've seen extensive use of the Klingon language, the Vulcan language, the Romulan language. Bajoran, I'm sure, has her own language. I'm, I'm not an expert in Deep Space Nine, but you had that. Um, I'm sure that the Cardassians spoke in their own language that was subtitled over every once in a while. So you have that ability to do that in Star Trek. It's not a foreign concept. So why don't you think that they, prop, they used that as, as a cultural expansion format, if you will, for Hoshi to be able to do that. Because I think that Linda Park had that capacity. And it's not like we're strangers in science fiction to, to um, overdubbing or subtitles. That's just that's a kind of a, a, a pretty familiar constraint when it comes to science fiction. I think, I think it's an issue of, I think Enterprise is really stuck in that, in that middle ground where it was just the beginning of this type of television. And I think it was just unfortunately in this middle ground. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, we, we often talk about on this show fan, uh, fran, uh, franchise fatigue. And I don't want to say that every issue can be chalked up to the franchise fatigue because I think at a certain point, the show also has to own up to the fact that, you know, it succeeded on its own merits. Also, they had some uh, areas which it, it fell short on and it wasn't just fatigue with the franchise. But I think this is an aspect where I think there was a predictable formula. I think people predict or people expect something from Star Trek, right? Star Trek has a bridge, has a captain. It has these familiar tropes where they'll speak to an, an alien race who are often humanoid that often have like perhaps just a forehead bump. Um, but for the most part, they'll speak English. They'll speak something that is merely a vessel for them to tell a moral allegory that the rest of the audience can really relate to. Alien culture, language, important sometimes but almost sometimes almost tangential to kind of like the point they're trying to get across i think a lot of people got used to that type of star trek and it was just right before the big boom i would say of prestige tv now where you have this type of world building and you didn't have 26 episode seasons you had 13 you had maybe even 10 it's a limited arc so you have less seasons less episodes so maybe we can do more um, we could pack more world building into these episodes as opposed to just kind of like we need to come up with something to fill 26 slots, guys. You just got to crank them out. And I think I think Enterprise is really caught in that in that zone. It started breaking that in season three, season four. But I think now if Star Trek comes back to TV, I think you're going to have to have and I think they will do that type of world building. Right. Have truly alien aliens. Right. And I think we're getting to a point in which. Maybe the budget and the expectation from the audience demands it. You know, I think they're going to demand something a little bit more than just, all right, we understand each other right now, and it's going to be kind of the same Star Trek, which we love, but at the same time, we're used to it, and sometimes we expect the same too much. Uh, I understand that from a production standpoint, they kind of have to cut to the point pretty quickly. And maybe they could have gotten around to that just with something as simple as, oh, we have this language in common and we'll stick to that. But, you know, every now and then, like, have a few words from an alien language until they figure out uh, something that uh, that works. And it's like, they'll, or a tran- uh, 
one of the deleted scenes from Broken Bow where the translator breaks down for a second. Uh, just little things like that every now and then would help to show that their technology isn't quite perfect yet. Yeah, I thought it would have been really neat it's just somewhere along the lines where Hoshi just couldn't, she couldn't translate something that was so critical, so mission critical that it caused something, you know, to just haphazardly go wrong just, just because she was human and she tried her best and she had to suffer the consequences of not being, of being the best that Earth could offer but not being the best that we needed in the mission. Because I think that there is a huge distinction between that, that the officers that were on the Enterprise, on the NXL-1, that graduating class were the best of the best of the best. They weren't. And I'm sorry to say that for people that are fans of Enterprise, but they really weren't. They were the best that, that Starfleet had to offer given the information that they've been able to prepare themselves with before they went out into space that has been un, just colossally unknown. <laughs> you know, you really, it's kind of like going into a boxing match. I mean, trying to fight somebody that you've never fought before. And it's just you versus this other person, and you've never fought an entire, an entire 12 rounds in your life. Well, this person's coming in at a record of 10 and 0. You don't know what's going you know, to happen. Could, you can prepare yourself as good as you can. But, you know, it's um, as J.G. Hertzler's Samuel Travis says in Axanar, the only true test of a combat vessel is combat. You can have all the data in the world, but until you actually throw that first punch or fire that first volley of photon torpedoes, you don't know what your ship can take. And you don't know what your people can take. So I thought that would have been neat just to be able to, to have the language there as a barrier, to use that as a plot device, to kind of throw a monkey in the wrench where not everything is as clean as it may seem. Because there were times where, say, when, when the Enterprise was in the Expanse and after Zadi Prime and after it just got the crap kicked out of it, they needed a warp coil, they found a ship, they basically tried to negotiate with the captain of that ship and what? They were able to communicate with them pretty effectively to the point where they just like, hey, you know what? We just met each other for the first time. We are two completely different species. But now we can talk to each other. I always found that just to be a little bit contrived. I understand what you're saying because of the exposition and the time needed to be able to get the story across. But there are moments where you really needed to not let that happen. And, and the reason why I brought up that particular scene is because there's a... There's a really interesting point that Mike also brought up, and it's, it has to deal with this particular scene. And he asked, there's something I've always wondered. What happened to the ship of the Illyrians that Archer stole the warp coil from? I'm reasonably certain that the captain, unfortunately who went unnamed, went on to become the leader of the Cardassian underground resistance, quote unquote, uh, parentheses, ha-ha, but not sure what to the rest. So, well, we've talked about this before. This is a really good question. And I've actually entitled this in our notes, The Wrath of Damar, because Casey Biggs, one of your favorite actors, played the role of the unfortunately unnamed Illyrian captain. So I'm going to ask you this directly. You really have thought about this, about this point. Do you think that it would have been a really good way to bookend this story? And what do you think happened to this captain and where do you think he would have been able to get some type of satisfaction and justice from what happened to him? Yeah, so I think now that you mentioned it, actually, I had forgotten that the Illyrian captain in this episode, in Damage, isn't named at all. And I think I was just looking at the Memory Alpha article on him. And yeah, it's just this unnamed Illyrian captain played by Casey Biggs, who, of course, played Damar in Deep Space Nine. Um, but for me, I think I was surprised that he wasn't named. And I think that's very unusual that 
you know, this character in this episode pr- played a pretty significant role, but he wasn't named at all. I think I think he really deserved to be named because, in my opinion, in my own personal headcanon, what Archer did because of the necessity of the situation, quote unquote, because the ends justify the means. He basically took their warp core from, stole it from them. It was a pirate, right? Basically became the pirates that he fought against when they first entered the expanse, right? But it was the complete reversal of it. Took their warp core. He said, you know, you'll you'll make it back to your home planet. It'll just take you a lot longer, but you'll be fine. But basically took by force what he cannot take by other means, right? And for me, this was another breaking point or another uh, huge shift in terms of what Archer was becoming because of the Zindi mission. And I think... As with, any, as with everything we say on Warp 5, if the show had continued, I think it would been really interesting to see this Illyrian captain become Archer's own con, right? You know, Kirk in Space Sea just said, you know, we're going to put them on this planet. We'll come back and maybe, you know, we'll see them build a civilization. He never knew. He never came back to check on him. He never knew what unintended consequences that action would have had. I think that had been really interesting because Archer's the first captain. He's still doing it for the first time. And really interesting down the road, he realizes this decision that was made in the heat of the moment and for the the greater good, quote-unquote, has unintended consequences, that sometimes the ends justify the means, somehow justify something else you didn't expect, and it's even worse somehow, right? Maybe the Illyrian captain exacts revenge somehow, or maybe... They all die, or they, they're, or, you know, he has a family that he had to get back to, but he couldn't get back to. And I think something to really shock him, to really shock him with the consequence of, of making that calculation, saying that okay, you made that calculation to save Earth, but there's a price that comes with that. You just can't get away scot free. And I don't know what that is per se, but I think really interesting down the road for him to really face that and have an actual price exacted in the same way that Kirk had a price exacted on him. Um, through Spock's death, right? You know, he can't just cheat death all the time, that it's going to come back and haunt him. And I think really cool to kind of see it in season five. It just comes back to haunt him. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen some kind of a consequence to that too. Um, even if it's just something from Starfleet coming down on him, like what the heck were you thinking? Or, you know, you some armchair admiral saying you needed to find some other way to go about this. And, Maybe, hopefully, they sent some other ship as relief, maybe Vulcans, maybe a Zindi ship that was uh, on friendly terms, somebody that could go and help them, and maybe they find out that in the interim between when they took the, the warp coil from them and when the ship got to uh, got to them to help, they'd been set upon by some other pirates who had killed off most of the crew and maybe the captain and, and maybe one or two others are the only survivors. And now they have sworn re- bloody revenge on Archer and they uh, go out of their way to hunt him down and, uh, and exact that revenge. And I think that would be for a really compelling arc in a fifth season. If we'd gotten one, you know, when I was thinking about how this may logically play out, I was always thinking of, what if it wasn't the captain anymore that was exacting his revenge on Archer? And if if Enterprise was able to extend further and even maybe get into movies, I always felt that this ship never made it back home, but the subspace signal of what happened to them did eventually. And it was picked up by their home world and the families, the families that survived, they were the ones that created this plan to go against the Federation. 
not so much they can't go against the Federation or the or, or Starfleet, but what if they had enough influence in their sector of the galaxy to really start seeing seeding the or, or sowing the seeds of dissent, and maybe looking for allies and maybe finding a safe haven or creating some type of unholy alliance with the Romulans and allowing them to get a foothold in their territory. Because we needed to find a way to bring this back logically into the fold of this story. And I've always wanted to see just kind of like the, the, the far-reaching sin of what Archer did not come at him directly, but from kind of like this, this, this tangent that he would never see Almost kind of like you know, it's kind of like the way that uh, that sh- that um, Shinzon came at Picard in Nemesis. He didn't really come at him directly, and I think that really put off Picard because he didn't know how to deal with seeing a clone of himself. And I'm sorry, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Nemesis, but it's been around for a while, so I think it's pretty. <laughs> we're, you ruined we're the movie to, for me. I was going to watch it this weekend. God. Well, wouldn't you like to see like those those really neat kind of um, these uh, these these weird circumstances? Like, take yesterday's Enterprise for example. You know, yesterday's Enterprise was really cool because when the Enterprise C went back into that temporal rift around Narendra Three, but Tasha Yar was on board. It's because of of that instance that we got Sela in this universe in the in the non um, affected universe where the Enterprise C had to go back to. But she, but her, you know, her 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 um, child survived. The child of the Romulan commander and Sela. What's because, you know, Tasha Yar went back for Castillo, you know, not, and you know, we all know what happened there. So it would have been neat to, I think, have seen maybe like not just not just the captain, the captain's family, but all of these kind of like um, orphaned families and children to exact their their revenge on Starfleet. I don't know. I like that point actually, Nora. I just wanted to interject real fast. Is I think that's a really good sure. point because if you could. Tying that effect of, of what happened to that Illyrian captain could also tie into what happened with Archer's actions or carelessness or naivete in terms of how he dealt with the Klingons, right? Because remember, there are like three instances in which he dealt with the Klingons where it wasn't necessarily he was ill-intentioned, but his actions had an unintended effect. Broken bow, what uh, what happened in Judgment, um, and then what happened uh, There's a, in Marauders, right? There's these instances where, you know, he just did an action to kind of satisfy what he needs to do in that instance. But he didn't realize that down the road, the Klingons are keeping score. And they're like, who's this rogue human captain that keeps messing up our plans or intervening? And I think it's been really interesting to kind of, in addition to, to all those things that happened with the Klingons, this situation with the Illyrian captain, at the end of Enterprise, if it got additional seasons, you could see an, an older archer who becomes admiral or something or president saying, this is why we have rules. This is why we have a prime directive. This is why Starfleet needs to have general orders because you need to stop future captains from making the mistakes I did where these unintended consequences happen when you're just like, yeah, I'm just worried about my own ship at the time. And I think you need to think bigger than yourself. And I think they could really tie that all together in terms of you know how Starfleet becomes Starfleet. I just had a mind-blowing idea. Mind-blowing. What if... Future guy was the son of the Illyrian captain. <laughs> God, that's so Boom. obscure. Oh man, that's yeah, that is good. That's good. I mean, at this point, right? future future guy is like an avatar that could be anyone. <laughs> like it could be anyone we that not anyone, but like 
it could be so many things because you could attack it from so many <laughs> angles, right? Because, oh man, that's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, Jeff, do you think you could, can you, can you kind of, kind of uh, follow that thread? I mean, what do you think? Do you think that has any merit at all? Just for fun. Um, maybe. Um, <laughs> it, it actually just made me think of something. I've been rereading all the old Enterprise novels and there is a line in, uh, I'm, I'm reading the novelization of Shockwave right now. And there's a line in it where Silic is actually wondering if what future guy looks to him is what he looks like to future guy. So it's like, does future guy even know who he's talking to? Oh, no, that's a good mm. point. It's kind of like the, uh, the, the mirrored glass only goes, it goes both ways. It's true. Yeah. That's kind of neat. I think that's the fun part about talking about these different subspace postcards is you get these questions and they're not necessarily right or wrong in, in any respect. It's just the exploration of, and I think that any one of those ideas is plausible Unfortunately, we didn't get the uh, the seasons to be able to explore those, but but it is neat to to speculate on that. And one of the last postcards that we actually are going to read, funny enough, are about postcards. And Lee Benjamin, he asked us, speculate on crew postcards to home based on character-centric episodes. And then Mike Morrison also said, conversely, the flip side of that would be correspondence that the crew received. So I thought it would be neat to discuss both sides of postcards, actual postcards that were, and I'm talking physical mail, care packages. You know, we love care packages when we were in school. We got those nice brown packages full of food, stuff like that that we didn't get, you know, at, at school. We always got, you know, mom's cookies or what have you or um, uh, VHS recordings of Star Trek that we didn't get a chance to see. Um, I know that, Jeff, you said that you've gotten those kind of care packages. Christopher Jones said he used to get those care packages from home um, from Deep Space Nine that was aired in the States when he was living overseas. So we have two different philosophies here when it comes to communication. We have actual, physical, love-sent care packages versus digital subspace messages that can only be sent from, from space, from the ship, one way. So how do you think... Let's go to the physical mail, because that's a really interesting concept. How do you think the Enterprise would have received physical mail so far out in space? Because there, there wasn't really a way to get that to them unless one of two things happened. They were just coming back for a refit or some type of resupply, which we didn't see a lot of, or the Earth Cargo Authority would run it out to them at, like a courier. Because in 2151, we didn't have the Excelsior-class courier ship that ferried mail and diplomats and personnel back and forth, like using transwarp. So is that even a possibility, kind of reaching out there and sending out physical mail? And if they were successful in doing so, it would be very limited. Yeah, they uh, um, went pretty far out past the uh, Earth Cargo Authority's uh, range pretty early in Season 1, even. And so at that point, it, it's pretty hard for them to get mail anywhere. Um, my thought is printers. Uh, maybe they get a signal and uh, they, they print out uh, a copy of whatever was being sent. Uh, maybe uh, um, even some kind of an advanced 3D printer for objects. Okay, so that being the case then, we're, we are assuming that on the NX-01 that there was a replicator of some kind. Because we didn't really see a quote-unquote matter replicator, not in the same that we saw it in, in the kind of in the 23rd century when, you know, when Kirk would order up his food and all of a sudden a tray with styrofoam cups would pop out. We really did see that technology flourish from next generation forward. So, you know, if we had replicators on the ship, ooh, 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 interesting point here. 
if we had those type of 3D printers on the ship, then why wouldn't we have put them to use after Azadi Prime to help refabricate parts of the ship that we needed to help rebuild vital systems? Maybe they didn't have the raw materials. This is true. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, like, it's just something that we don't get a chance to see. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking it's uh, just for uh, just simple things like, uh, you know, kind of like the 3D printers we have now. You have like layers of plastic or maybe they can make layers of a metal, but they have to have the raw material to, to layer in the first place. Um, like maybe if they get like a letter from home, like in uh, the episode where they have the uh, trip is holding a printout of a drawing from a child from uh, the, the class uh, from when they, they got the, um, the letters that they were responding to. And he's holding a, a child's crayon drawing. And I'm, I'm think I'm guessing that, you know, maybe they just printed it out. You know, it was sent like an email, like a, a JPEG or something. And they, they printed it. Was that proving gr- that was proving ground? Wasn't um, it? Or was it uh, Silent Enemy? It was one of those two. I think it was proving. Uh, I think it was Silent Enemy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. That, no, like, it was. Uh, was it um, Breaking the Ice? It was Breaking the Ice. Yes. Breaking the Ice. That was it. That yes. was it. That was it. Yeah. That's a really good, good one. Episode. Will. That's good. Plus one to Will. There you go. Boom. Because um, yeah, Proving Ground was season three. Oh, yeah. With, right, right, uh, right. with the Zindi weapon. With, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I agree with. Uh, I agree with Jeff. I think. I think. I think that would make sense, like printers, or they yeah. would they would get a signal. Um, as for care packages, I think I would only assume that perhaps when, if and when they go back on their, their on like supply runs, um, whether they go back to Earth or go back to a friendly human colony, I think at this point where it's not particularly clear the extent to which um, humans have colonized. There are colonies out there. There's Alpha Centauri and there's other outposts, but we're just not sure and. I think it would be interesting if there was a Starfleet outpost or relay station where they do like a mail call, right? Like this is this is the farthest Starfleet installation here. And obviously, you know, it's farther than Earth, but it's still kind of the NX is still pretty is going pretty far from even this uh farthest installation that's out there. And periodically when they come back, uh they'll 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 pick up messages that they get from their Earth cargo service that periodically drops a uh a package or uh, an entire, you know, convoy of stuff every three months or something. It'd be really interesting because I think that ties into what we talked about at the beginning of the episode is it'd be nice to see more of a connection to Earth, what's going on Earth, which is why I like Breaking the Ice, the whole um, talking to the that classroom because my, my wife used to be a teacher and I think it's really neat. I think she really liked that when she watched Enterprise that they acknowledge the fact that there is still a third grade class and they still have questions about what we do. Like, that's very tangible to an audience because they get that because we still do that with the military now or with astronauts and why wouldn't they do it with the the NX ship, right? Well, yeah, and in, in physical mail, I mean, that's that really shows you kind of like the personality behind the character because those are those would be items that are so personal, your favorite food or a trinket that you left behind or in this case, I do and I do believe in Breaking the Ice, this is where there was a coded communication that came from the Vulcan captain's ship where and it was um it was a private message for T'Pol and it was it was encrypted and you know trip because it's trip and he doesn't let enough alone you know he he decrypted it and he realized that it was something so deeply personal and you get you got to see actually how it affected T'Pol um because it was her I guess it was her it was her marriage arrangement (laughs) and her um her summons I guess back to to Vulcan you know to to honor that arrangement so if you saw, okay, let's sort of speculate a little bit. Like um, knowing what we know of the characters, 
obviously Reed, he's a little bit hard to come by. Maybe he would have gotten like a, I don't know, like pineapple up, upside down cake cookies or something like that. You know, but um, what do you think Archer would have gotten? What do you think we've gotten like, like you know, videotapes or, or holotapes of, uh, of a water polo games? You know, let's, uh, let's go down the line of a, of a couple of crewmen. And, and what do you think that would have been neat to see them uh, personality wise, those little tidbits of information from those care packages? I think it's pretty clear that there's no ESPN in the future because I feel like Archer's watching the same water polo game all the time. The same like grainy water polo footage. Like it's not high def. It's not like it's always like some old game from back when he was in Stanford or something. It doesn't seem like a new game that he's rooting for. His glory days. Right, exactly. Um, Although although I think they do mention, uh, I think Shuttle Pod 1, right? I think they talk about like the World Cup. They talk about England. They talk about America. I think... I think it would be nice to – I think Archer would probably gotten stuff from, like, like actual mail from, like, the president or, like, other dignitaries, other VIPs. Probably a lot of school children. Um, I think Trip would call – I think it was reference to Trip, like, you know, talking to his old girlfriends, old flames. Um, maybe with – And up until a point, it would have gotten something from Lizzie. Something from Lizzie. Um, Travis, obviously, is probably something from, from the boomers, right? I think – there's that big thing in Horizon where he said, you know, he never got back to his father, right? And his father died, right? He never got back. And yeah. I think Hoshi, maybe from one of her students, that would been really nice, right? Like one of her students, she was teaching in Brazil from Broken Bow saying, how are you doing out here? And it had been really cool to kind of see a scene where, you know, the letters from a, a student of hers and she's saying, uh, the student essentially saying that they're so proud of her for being so brave and for, for, for you know, you're an inspiration to all of us and for her recollecting what she's been doing this entire time, how scared she's been, you know, how much fighting they've had to be doing, like how much fighting they're doing out here, how much this is not exploration that she signed up for. I think it was a lot different. I think that would be really cool to kind of see that contrast from this, the student's letter of like, Oh, you know, you're doing such great work. It must be so exciting. And her knowing the reality of actually, it's not nearly as glamorous as you think it is. Right. I think that'd be really cool. Or she's teaching classes by correspondence on the new languages that she's learning. Or that, that's also a really good point, too. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of those could have been collected for, I don't know, a, a future course in xenolinguistics and yeah, Starfleet. That, that's a really great point, Jeff. Actually, it's like in her downtime, in the mess, she's writing something, and someone comes by, like, reads, like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm writing a book or something. I'm writing a reference book for my students back home, right? Oh, that made so much sense. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, what about, um, well, we've got to see Phlox. I mean, Phlox had his correspondence with his, uh, his, you know, the, the doctor that he always wrote every once in a while. And, uh, Dr. Lucas. I mean, what do you think? Uh, and he has three wives, so. We each have know, three uh, husbands. Do you think that they would have sent him any mail? I know Feasel probably would have sent him something really interesting. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of, uh, okay, so so the physical mail is an interesting thing. And we know that's probably not logistically as, you know, as, um, as plausible to be able to get stuff out there. But for, for digital, you know, for the subspace signals that go out there, we saw that there were only like a handful. And in Silent Enemy, we saw one specific subspace probe that was launched to ex- be able to extend the signal out further so that they could keep going on their mission. And I think but, they said that was like the third or the fifth one that they had dropped on their route. And then some of the others had gotten destroyed as they uh, uh, worked their way out. From that ship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's I mean, I always thought that subspace was, you know, it's um, it takes a long time, obviously, in this in this era in twenty one fifty one and in in the 10 years that we understand uh, Archer's tenure in, in the Enterprise, you know, 
subspace takes a long time, a long time for messages to get back and forth. So how would we, you know, how would they have benefited on Earth from from getting all this information? And do you think that they would have been able to take this information and use it to Starfleet's advantage in a timely manner, knowing the delay, the time delay of how that data, if it ever got back to Starfleet, do you think that would have been useful? Do you think that they would have been using that to just basically create these different courses and start arming their students with this information to create better officers through the academy? Do you think that actually, I mean, do you think that there was enough time for them to be able to use that, turn it around, put it into a, such a way, a deliverable format to train new people and then use them to maybe outfit the Columbia? I don't know. What do you think? Because those captain's logs have to get back sometime. I think there should have been a process where it was regulated, right? A regular, a regular process where it either was through a subspace encoded message or a secure dedicated line like, you know, that you, that you see later on in other Star Trek, right? you know, priority one message. It's all through a dedicated comm link. But I think it would have also been interesting to to have Archer hand deliver or like have to go back to command every now and then to kind of give a, a full debrief to, to the brass. I think... Um, there should have been something that was dedicated either either physically in person, a physical package, or you know, a dedicated communications link between between him and command to kind of get these captain's logs back. But you're right, I think you're assuming that the first captain has a lot of leeway and he's out here, but there has to be someone at least vetting this, right? And I think he's in pretty close contact with, with Admiral Force, but I think is is Forrest reviewing these logs or someone else's? And are there any questions as to like what he's doing and is is what he's doing? Is that the correct uh, course of action? Yeah, I think they probably send these logs back um, probably like on a daily basis. At the end of each day, part of the routine is package up a, a subspace burst with all of the day's logs from all the different departments and shoot it off to Earth. And then it gets opened up and... Uh, sifted through um and then you know whoever goes through them and then if they have any questions they'll shoot back another message back to the enterprise and say you know what's the deal with this or you know we don't understand this could you explain it better i guess it would have been interesting to see some type of time delay that affected the course of the mission you know because basically their orders well okay so we have two kind of schools of thought here you have subspace which by the tropes of Star Trek, we've always understood that it's not basic. It's not instantaneous. It's not like Ansible, like in Ender's Game, where it moved by the speed of thought, basically, and through time. So you have, we're going to put it on a coded subspace message. Hopefully that will make it back to Earth. Okay, so we have that. Then we have Admiral Forrest is on the line for you. So there's that signal. So you have this juxtaposition of these two different types of technologies. Is it... I mean, is it one just is the does the transmission from Admiral Forrest using so much bandwidth that because it's so important for him to talk to Archer that they're basically using basically every single iota of relay strength on the Enterprise to absorb that communication and subspace is just kind of like snail mail? Yeah, that's what, what they uh, that? they they seem to be implying that in Silent Enemy when they were putting down the subspace uh, uh, relays to to boost the signal. And as they were getting further and further away from the last relay they had laid, the signal from Admiral Forrest was just really uh, attenuated, and it was like static, and they were having trouble connecting. Um, so 
my guess is that they were using those boosters to try to keep as close to a real-time signal as they could, but it probably required a lot of uh, uh, labor on both ends, both in terms of power and uh, um, work. Because yeah, I've always wanted to see that scene like in Red October where where the captain of the Kanevalov, and he, he grabs it and he, he crushes the orders. He's like, these orders are two days old. You know, and he's like, well, where's Ramius? You know, he's like, I, how much, what am I supposed to do with these? You know, he's, he's got two days ahead of me. I, there's nothing that I can do to affect this situation. He is so mad. And it would have been really neat somewhere in, and I think probably in the Zindi arc where all of a sudden it's like, no, don't do this. You know, you have to go do this. And maybe this is, this is, this is the opportune time to talk about how we could have introduced the, um, the inclusion of, of the Columbia into this situation, where the Columbia finally has been refit and armed with all the knowledge that the subspace logs have been able to, to do for Starfleet. Get that turned around, put that into the personnel, arm Hernandez with as much information as, as they could possibly do, give her this basically sealed order, go out and talk to Archer and say, like, these are our new orders. You have to affect the situation this way because we can't reach you. You know, we can't, we, we basically have to follow your last telemetry. Columbia's have to go and warp out there and turn itself basically into a communications anchor to finally get in touch with the Enterprise and then we're going to help you. But do you think that, there's a really interesting question that was posed, not so much on the, on, on the question for, for subspace postcards, but well, you brought it like to our attention almost at the same time. And how would the Columbia have affected the situation in the expanse one of two ways, if Hernandez was actually part of the command structure of the Enterprise, or if the Columbia itself just basically shouldered half of the burden that was happening between trying to find the sphere builders and affecting that mission and also putting an offensive front against the Zindi and especially against the reptilian offense. I mean, you have two kind of like opposing forces here. So what do you think was the best way to handle introducing the Columbia that would have made sense to the viewers? I like the fact that if there was going to be the Columbia in the Expanse, it would just be the Columbia in the Expanse. It wouldn't just be Hernandez aboard the NX because you have an issue of the chain of command. And the only way the chain of command is resolved is you can't have two captains. One would have to accept uh, a demotion or a lower rank. And I don't think either character you best served with a lower rank or being more subservient. I think they, Archer and Hernandez, play off each other as equals. They're on the same equal footing. And I think not only does the dynamic, is it best served with them being on equal footing, but I think having two ships makes a lot of tactical sense. I know Normie might disagree with uh, with me in terms of keeping the uh, Columbia as a reserve, which makes a lot of sense too. But I think on the flip side is having the Columbia serve as a backup to the NX-01 and vice versa makes a lot of sense, saying one ship goes there's at least one other ship to make sure that the mission's success. And I think it would be really interesting because I think it would have been a completely different arc that we saw in season three if the Columbia was there because the conflict and tension between the captains would have been there from the get-go. I think because you had such a progression in Archer uh, of wanting vengeance, I think I think it's safe to say, although it's an assumption on my part, I think Hernandez would probably be the less vindictive, but who knows? She could have been the one that was also hell-bent on, on revenge as well. But you could easily see a situation where this parallels new Battlestar Galactica, where you have Adama and Kane both have their battle stars, right? Not, uh, although in this case, um, Kane has rank 
has a higher rank than Adama's kind of pulling rank, right? But you kind of see this tension between the two. And I definitely don't want to say that Hernandez and Archer would be anywhere near that level. But I think it would be really cool to kind of see where Archer is kind of bending the rules. Hernandez is there to say, hey, what are you doing? And I'm a captain, and I'm the captain of another ship. And if push comes to shove, what am I going to do to make you stop, right? And I think it would be really interesting because that could have gone anywhere in, in, in a lot of directions. Yeah, I, I think it would have been uh, really interesting to have the uh, Columbia come in midway through the season, um, maybe even right uh, time it actually, or later in the season, time it right after they just stole the warp coil from the, uh, from the other ship. And then have Hernandez. Oh, look at Jeff bringing it back around. He's a smart That's guy. True. Have have Hernandez come <laughs> in and just look at Archer just in horror at what he had just done, and uh, um, just bring it in that way. Oh, that's a really good point. You know, what could have been interesting is um, instead if we if it went that route, and it could have been a really interesting storytelling shift if when a, when Hernandez came on on you know onto the scene and. There was a quiet moment after Zadi Prime and after um, after Archer stole the warp coil where she and Archer were on the Enterprise or on the Columbia, either way. And maybe Archer was taking that tour of the Columbia. That scene where in Home, where Archer was touring the Columbia and saying that you needed more weapons, I told Admiral Jeffries you needed more weapons, that scene could have been easily transposed into an episode uh, during the Zindi arc when Hernandez came on the scene because Hernandez is like, you know what? I'm still an explorer. I'm here to help, but we're still supposed to be doing the right thing out here. And instead of having that dynamic on the mountain, that dynamic could have been easily done during the course of a mission, a critical mission where Archer was hell bent on doing something one way, a very aggressive, violent way. And Hernandez is like, hold on a second. No, 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 no. That's not the way to do it. This is, this is not you. You are not that Archer, but whatever they were doing was, together and mission critical to make sure that the next phase against the Zindi was going to happen. It could have been mining resources. It could have been fixing the enterprise itself. And they needed to just basically come to a conclusion where they were both agreeing on something. And Arch is like, no, no, no. You know, he was like banging his fist. He's like, you don't understand the same way. Like to Paul, when she lost her cool and smashed her, her pad on the desk, something that was so just not Archer in her eyes. This is like, this is not the Jonathan Archer that I left. And in turning his opinion around on something, he realizes that, you know what? We do need more captains out here. We do need more help out here. I can't do it on my own. I just can't. You know, I can't make all these decisions in a vacuum. And that would have been really neat to see. Because I did like, I understood what they were doing, getting Archer out into the fresh air, climbing the mountain. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of like a very, very stereotypical storytelling, trying to clear your head, trying to reach the summit, all that kind of stuff. But it would have been really neat to see it pay off in space on mission, you know, where, where you really needed to kind of like put your differences aside, or at least Archer had to put his prejudices aside in order to make this thing happen, whatever it was going to be, whatever that, whatever that key point was. And it could have been a really critical, you know, uh, cresting moment in the storyline where both of them had to come together and in, in working together, you saw the strength of Starfleet and then maybe Shran's like, Hey, there's something to this. You know, look at all of this. Like, if I join my Kamari class cruiser along with two NX ships and maybe some support, look at what's happening here. And then that could have been referenced in Babel later on. 
It's like, I remember when I joined you against the Zindi. Look at our, look at the strength of our firepower when we were all together. So, all right, we're rewriting basically all four seasons. We're going to go pitch a big budget back. The answer <laughs> is, this is why you need a Justice League, guys. This is, this is how the yeah, Justice right? League forms, a.k.a. the Federation, right? They're just like, right. Wonder Twin powers combine. <laughs> and they team up, right? But yeah, that's... I think there's a whole... There's a whole bunch of ways I think it could have worked out, but it still worked out pretty well. But I think Hernandez, I just love Hernandez. I think she would have been a really great role uh, in season three. Three, I mean, yeah, it would have been nice to expand her role and it would have been nice to have seen how she helped inform Starfleet Command. And, you know, who knows, maybe maybe would have gotten, again, like um, just some of her own storyline going off. And I don't know how that would have affected the destiny books that you read, mm. but I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if, um, if there was enough story that t- to tie back into that or if it would have affected those stories, but I still have to read those. I'll be the first one in a minute. Like I know that <laughs> I know it from you guys, but I haven't read it. I'm sure Jeff, you've probably read those already twice. Yeah. Yeah. See, <laughs> of course, of course that. Jeff would have read it twice. <laughs> of course. It would have read it twice. <laughs> okay. So, um, in terms of subspace postcards, and and uh, and trying to figure out what uh, what a little bit of a inside of personality would have seen in Hernandez. What do you think that she would have received in a in a nice care package? That's a good question. Ooh, a stumper. I think it, I I don't want to get into like book territory, but if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff. But what did it mention in the book that Hernandez was family was very important to her, right? And she she had like a family she was very close to, and um. Obviously, things didn't work out where she saw her family again, but I think, you know, I think... Yeah, that was one of the plot points was she was uh, broken up because she wasn't able to see them again. Right, right. Uh, probably something from her family or friends or... I don't know. I feel, Of all the captains, I feel... I mean, all the captains, we don't see very many, but I think of all the captains seen Enterprise, I feel like she's she's probably the one that has is the most well-rounded. I feel like she has... She obviously... Is, you know, is proud of her career in Starfleet and she wants to advance and she's good at what she does. But of all the captains, she strikes me as one that also has a healthy family life that has real life connections and relationships with people where Archer may not have that. He's kind of just the career man, the career man that we kind of see in other Star Trek captains where the ship is, is, the, is everything. But I kind of feel like Hernandez seems a lot more down to earth and well-rounded would probably have people that would send her postcards and that would just like ask pictures her, of uh, family and letters of what they're doing and babies uh, kind of keeping keeping up on what's going on with the family back home you know and i'd like to have seen and, and i'd like to have seen her open up like a little bit of a, like a little bit of velvet box and uh open up the ring oh because there, there was <laughs> because they were married for a short point in time and maybe it was just one of those kind of like after after the the, the uh, basically the Zindi arc, when they got back home, he finally, you know, Archer finally made some peace with himself and gave this to her. He's like, you know what? This is a reason why we didn't work out, but this is a reason why we did work together really well to help defeat the Zindi because we were able to come together because we understood each other. You know, and I thought that would have been, an, even like, it would have been a small care package, you know, but it would have been really poignant. Maybe that's a romantic in me. I don't know. No, that's true. I think that makes a lot of sense because we've never seen a relationship. Has there ever been a romantic relationship between two captains at the same time in not Star Trek? In like the in, in the same service? Because I think that would be really interesting, right? Because I don't see Archer giving up command. 
I don't see Hernandez giving up command. But if they both love each other, right? Like, do are they just going to go their separate ways? I mean, I think that's really interesting. If again, if Enterprise had more seasons, like they're both married to the ships, right? But at the same time, like, can there be a relationship between the two? They're technically not in the command structure, right? They're technically just not overseeing each other. So could they just be married, just don't see each other for huge stretches of time, but still have a relationship? I don't know. That's really interesting. Well, let's put that down for a possible next sh- next That's show. True. Love. It's, love it's is the next topic. <laughs> <laughs> the love boat, NXL1. <laughs> yeah, that. I mean, I, that's actually a good topic, like relationships, right? Like, Makes makes a lot of sense. I don't think we've done that yet, so yeah. we're gonna have to put that down. Pencil that. You got one in. Travis and Gannett. Oh yes, oh yes, a torrid love affair, of uh, of true love and of uh, intrigue and and uh, kind of Section Thirty One ness. She wasn't Section Thirty One. Was she Section Thirty? She was just Starfleet intelligence. She was intelligence. Yeah. So yeah, so that's that's just the groom. That's just the, that's the feeder school for Section Thirty One. Yeah. Pretty much. JV. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you have okay. Travis Gannett. You have Flocks and Cutler. You have. To Paul and Trip, obviously Archer Hernandez. Well, you really could do an episode of this, actually. Okay. Right, we're doing it. Right, so all right, put that one down in the books. All right, guys, it's been a lot of fun talking about subspace postcards, and and we got in a lot of great feedback. And thank you so much for all the people in the Babel Conference that participated in sending in your requests and the subject matter that you would like to hear. And we are going to be doing another subspace postcards in the future. Um, so keep that in mind when you're listening to the show. It's like, hey, you know what? I really have something that I would like to talk about. You could always send that um, subspace message to us on the Babel Conference or through Trek FM. So just, again, keep that in mind. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to read your ideas on the show. But the subspace postcards, these aren't the only things that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It wasn't so much, you know, some down and dirty action, you know, and stuff. It's more like Spock is in heaven and it's all good until he comes back, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that's pretty, though, I think those are the lyrics. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. (laughs) (laughs) The Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axnar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! I can just hear the Earl Grey people screaming, Measure of a man! Measure of a man! <laughs> and you know what I would say to that? Death wish! Death wish! Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. I remember revisiting it now in full. And I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. I think part of it, you know, which is probably good, is that he's probably not familiar with what happened, you know, in, in season one of Next Gen, aside from hearing stories here and there. 
So he's just like, whatever, I'm just going to get the story. The 602 Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel. And you may di- you may disagree with it. You may not think it's, you know, it's great, but it's on purpose. He, he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary Treks. It's amazing to me, as I reread these stories, how much of it I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine, <laughs> you know, the, the actual series. Axonar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. My absolute favorite thing about this episode is that this is a love potion only if it's between a man and a woman. They make it explicitly clear that if you touch two men or two women, they just become really good friends. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So please check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button. That helps us out tremendously and it makes it easier for other listeners, new or listeners that are trying to find other shows on Trek.fm to find all of our shows as they search iTunes. And if you like what you hear on Warp 5 or any of the Trek.fm network shows, Please leave us a five-star rating. I would like a five-star rating, but please leave the rating that you believe that we have earned, and that will help us greatly increase our visibility on iTunes for new listeners. If you're not an Apple user, we have you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. Now, as an independent network, it takes a lot of resources to make sure that we can bring you the content that we love to deliver to you on a daily basis. At the network on Trek FM, we have servers that need to be paid for, we have equipment that needs to be maintained, and we have a lot of other expenses that you may not realize an actual independent network has in terms of an operating budget. That's where you, our listeners, come in. And the way that you can do it and help us continue all of this great coverage and to continue all this content on your podcast feeds is through patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, if you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals, goals that we need to help run the network, and different milestone contribution levels, the types of contributions that will allow us to, again, upgrade the equipment or to maintain all these different servers or to host all the different data that we have to use on a continual basis to be able to reference shows. These are things that we need to be able to you know, support, and you can help us do that. We also have really cool content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats in our development team, and more. And these are hit at certain contribution levels. So please, when you go to the patreon.com page on Slash Trek FM, you'll find all those listed. And there are different ways that you can participate, different levels. Find the one that's comfortable for you because we're very flexible about that situation. We know that not everyone can throw a lot of dollars at all these different Star Trek endeavors that are out there, but it really means a lot to us if you can support us 
It will mean a lot to you later on that we can continue all of our coverage and don't feel obligated to have to do it at any particular level. That's not what we're about. We're about just basically saying, hey, you know what? We need a little bit of help. We know that our listeners can help us, and that's what this is. So you'll find all the details again on patreon.com slash trekfm. And thank you always, always to our associate producers who help keep Trek FM well-funded through Patreon and the chosen contribution level for Warp 5. And those producers for our show, we have Mike Morrison and Floyd Dorsey. And thanks so much, guys, for supporting us, supporting us here on the show, supporting us on the Babel Conference, all of your input, all of your help, and all of your feedback. Because it's, you know, it's, it's fans like you that allow us to do what we need to do. And we thank you so much because your support means everything to us as hosts for your show. Now, if you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact. Look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and leave us a voice message or a subspace signal or a subspace postcard, as you prefer. You can also contact us through TrekFM, that's Twitter, at TrekFM, Facebook, facebook.com slash TrekFM, and as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at TrekFM and click Discussion on your menu bar. Now, Jeff, if our fans would like to get in touch with you and learn all about Trekopedia and your comic book, The Protectorate, how can they get in touch with you through the interwebs? I post on uh, the Babel Conference all the time, uh, all every day, uh, multiple times a day. He really does, people. He really does. But so do I. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm also, uh, um, like you said, uh, Trekopedia. It's uh, trekopedia.com. Uh, I've been working on that uh, quite a bit recently. Um, I've been, uh, putting together, I'm, I'm trying to compile a, a list of, uh, at the moment I'm, I'm working on every single person who's written, directed, acted, everything, and I'm putting it all together. And then also, uh, you know, all the, the characters that they've written, the episodes they've written, all that. That's the list uh, that I'm currently assembling. Uh, it's, uh, I've been working on that for the last couple of days and that'll probably be going up uh, sometime in the next week or so. I'm also on uh, my comic book, uh, The Protectorate. It's on uh, bandwidthcomics.com or on Facebook. Uh, and that's uh, just do a search for Bandwidth Comics. So thanks so much, Jeff, and, and enjoy your drive back and forth to uh, Comic-Con. I love, I mean, Comic-Con is great. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's something for everybody there in terms of the comic slash science fiction slash fantasy slash entertainment venues. And you know what? You know what would be perfect for you to do on your drive back and forth. Before you go, I would like for you to visit our sponsor, audible.com. And if there's an audiobook that you haven't been able to get to, like so many of us have, go to audible.com and go to audible.com slash trekfm. And as a trekfm listener, you have a 30 day free trial of an audiobook that you might want to download to your MP3 player, bring along with you, listen along in the car. So, I had to plug that, and you are the perfect segue for that. So Audible is a great way for you to read all the books that you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. So if you're in the car like Jeff is going to be, that's a perfect time for it. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice. Along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is, just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, Jeff, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. 
And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an eight-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and to get your seat on the mission. So we've talked a lot about ourselves today. Jeff has talked about himself. Will, I'd like for you to take this opportunity to let all of our listeners know how to get in touch with you across the internet. Well, you can reach me anytime on Twitter. My handle is at Will underscore Win. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. Of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference alongside Jeff and many others talking everything Star Trek and also non-Star Trek too, everything geek-related. Uh, it's a great forum for just intelligent, respectful conversations. So just find us there in the Babel Conference. I'm also um, the content manager for the network. So if you want to talk about things we've talked about in the past or things we haven't talked about yet, please drop me a line anytime. And of course, I am your co-host here on Warp 5 Norm, and it's always a pleasure uh, coming on every week and yeah hit me up on any of those venues awesome thanks Will and if you'd like to get in touch with me you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel conference as we've mentioned before you can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau that's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O and a lot of you know if not all of you know that I'm a huge supporter a proud supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar project and you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook and finally I am I am honored to say that I am a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon, and I am an executive producer for the network. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5.